grab your Bible, and we are going to be opening up to Acts chapter 7, the very tail end of Acts chapter 7. Rumor has it that last week, um, Nathan was extremely uh, grateful for me to uh, give him 53 verses to preach on. So to balance it out this week, I'm choosing to read uh, just a few verses. And we're going to be starting in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Uh, And then we're going to be going through uh, Acts 8, verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. But when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. When the witnesses laid down their their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. Having had last week off, I've had a couple weeks to prepare for this message. Um, And one of the things that I did was I I took time to read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody know anything about Fox's Book of Martyrs? It is a book that is chock full of stories of people from the past into the present who have stories of how they died for the sake of the gospel. I read another story, and I'll share it at the end, about a man who went to New Guinea, one of the first people to enter into a certain valley to share the gospel to cannibals. And the story that came out of that is absolutely amazing. And honestly, it shook my own faith. Because I looked at the comfortableness that we have as an an American, the joy that we have in in a country where we, we basically have religious freedom and we don't even understand hardly suffering. We might suffer job loss and we view that as deep, painful suffering, but it's not suffering for the gospel. We might view, uh, man, that was an awkward conversation, or they kind of made fun of me because of of my faith or what I believe, but that's not really deep persecution. If you read the New Testament, you see time and time again 
that Christians need to have a solid theology of suffering. I heard on, on Facebook this past week, somebody posted a message from uh, a pastor who just used the, misused scripture to say all you have to do is pray and God has a great outcome for you. A storm is coming. She, she used the story of, of how um, Elijah went up on the hill and it had not rained and he was waiting for a cloud to come because there was just a terrible famine in the land and just waiting and suddenly after seven times a servant going up and seeing a cloud started coming. Your cloud is coming. Your cloud is coming. The Lord is going to answer your prayers. And I'm going, how did the Lord answer Stephen's prayers? He died being stoned. This story of Stephen has been repeated millions of times. And Stephen stands as the first martyr for the church. Our word martyr is a transliteration of, of the Greek word that means witness. He was a witness. How was he witness? He was a witness in his death. He was a witness. And Stephen's death is the only death scene and martyrdom described in detail in the New Testament, except for that of Jesus Christ. So this morning, our theme is going to be a longer one, so if you're a long note taker, just kind of leave it up there for a little bit, Nathan. Uh, the theme this morning is, whatever we suffer due to faithfulness to Jesus, whatever we suffer in our faithfulness to Jesus, we will be rewarded with eternal acceptance and the encouragement that he will use our service for his purpose and his glory. First and foremost, in this, one of the things that I, I as I was reading through this, I, I'm seeing I, four lessons. The first thing is, because people are wicked and broken and depraved, and because they are wicked, broken, and depraved, they're, they're wicked people and they, they are enemies of God. Those who speak out boldly for God and against evil will suffer. When we speak out for God and for the gospel, we will suffer. And I think many of us here don't really suffer for the gospel because we are not bold and we do not speak out for the gospel. Growing up in maybe in our little Christian sub-circles, our subcultures of Christianity, we, we might even work in Christian places or we might circle ourselves with just Christian friends. We don't truly suffer for the gospel. So we don't experience this. Paul in 2 Timothy 3 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I would love to hear how we are being persecuted. And maybe you should start by asking me, Paul, how have you been persecuted? I really haven't. Is it 
indictment against the way that I live, against the way that we live, because we are truly not living those truly godly, God-centered, gospel-centered, evangelistic lives that God calls us to be on? Is it because we are not truly living into the Matthew expectation that we go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples? Sharing the gospel. Is that, the, is that an indictment against us that since we're living comfortably, safely, Satan does not sit by idly when his realm and his rule is being challenged. And in God's mysterious sovereign providence, God does not miraculously protect all of his servants who dare to confront the prince of darkness. He, he even allowed his choice, this choice young man, to be cut down in the prime of his ministry. The godly manner in, in which Stephen died is contrasted here with the, the absolute wickedness, the wicked way in which the Jewish leaders responded. We see Stephen as being calm, clear-headed, articulate, and even kind as these rocks were being hurled at him and crushing his body. Calm, clear-headed, articulate, kind. But these normally dignified men, leaders, religious leaders in the community, these members were out of control with rage. They gnashed their teeth. Their, they, their teeth just ground together. They screamed at the top of their voices. They covered their ears so they could not even hear what Stephen was saying. They rushed upon him and drove him out of the cities and stoned him to death. This Greek word, rushed, is used in other places in Scripture as the herd of demon-possessed swine. Remember that story? That herd of swine rushed off of a cliff into the ocean after Jesus healed the demon-possessed man. That same word is used here to describe the religious leaders. Some scholars debate whether or not the death sentence of Stephen was a judicial decision or whether or not it was mob violence. It doesn't really matter because these men were controlled by their rage and their, their absolute hatred. Luke just takes note that the witnesses who began stoning Stephen laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And he adds that Saul even approved of their execution. And as a result, that very day, persecution started in the church. Saul began ravaging the church like a wild boar just destroying areas. And obviously, with the approval of the Sanhedrin, house after house, people were committed to prison. Many were even put to death, and we'll see that later in Acts 26. Saul even described his own behavior as being in a raging fury against them. 
When a sinner comes underneath the conviction through hearing the gospel or through the, the faith or the example of a, a believer's godly life, he may be broken with repentance and come to faith in Jesus Christ, but he can also have his heart hardened and go deeper into rage and ridicule and blame as Saul did at that point. Because we live in a time where we just have relative freedom from violent persecution, we tend to forget that being a follower of Jesus Christ makes us enemies of the prince of evil. Makes us an enemy. Of course, brute force is not the only way that Satan does persecution. He also, this is the thing that I think where it gets us, he also uses deceit and cunning to lull us into adopting a worldly kind of behavior. He just kind of, yeah, you are entitled to that. You do deserve that. You need that. And after a while, instead of keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, what do we do? We get suckered into consumerism. Our need for, our, our desire for this. A worldly Christian is no threat to Satan's kingdom. A worldly Christian is no threat to Satan's kingdom. He gets us to live the selfish pursuit of comfort with little church attendance thrown in around, you know, just to make sure that we're doing the good thing. It doesn't seem to hurt his cause when pastors of great big huge churches and pastors of small churches give great big moralistic sermons that make you feel all warm and fuzzy. It's absolutely no threat to him. But the moment that a believer moves out of this comfortable Christianity and begins aggressively to go after souls for Jesus Christ or to give radically to the cause of Christ, to speak boldly for God against sin, is when a Christian moves into the line of fire. And often, these kind of Christians who move into the line of fire also catch friendly fire. They catch friendly fire from fellow Christians who are threatened by these new radical ways. I wonder in high schools, grade schools, in our workplaces, if we ever catch friendly fire from our fellow Christians because of our radical nature in way in which we follow Jesus Christ. Has the gospel, the, the work of Jesus Christ, his final work on the cross, the blood that is shed that no longer makes us enemies of God, does that gospel change the way that we work and we live and the, the way that we pursue people for the cause of Christ? Does that, do we catch any kind of friendly fire from our friends, from our family? And they go, man, you just need to tone down. They're not quite ready yet for that. You give how much to that? Dude, just, you know, you deserve that. No. You're giving up how much time to do what? Dude, come on, come out to the lake with us. We 
We should be prepared and not be taken surprised when we commit ourselves to be 100% for the Lord and then to suffer for it. It should be no surprise. Historically, that has been the case. It goes with the territory. But why risk it? Right? Why? I really enjoy my kind of life. Why risk it? Why leave a comfortable, safe way of life and living? You know, even, even if you're in a marriage, you know, honey, why should we step out and go meet these people and catch, you know, a little bit of grief because we're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with these unbelievers across the street? Why should we go and give our money in this kind of way and leave the comfortableness of our home, our lifestyle that we have? And to become even targets for, for Satan. Because two, here's the second point. Those who suffer for Christ can be assured of his faithful presence and support in their suffering. We can be assured of that and of his acceptance in heaven after death. Far better to die with Stephen under a hail of rocks crushing our skulls and be welcomed into the heaven with a risen Christ, than to die in the midst of our worldly comforts. I'm not sure, you know, if I was in a different congregation, people might go, amen. Some of you are going, no way. I'd much rather die with my creaturely comforts than to die underneath the hail of rocks crushing my skull. Why is that? Why is that? I think it's because uh, we have a poor perspective of life and our purpose. We, we even see in this how the Lord supported Stephen in the, the grand finale of his short life. Where do we see that first? All three members of the Trinity were present, are mentioned in, in chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's one. And then we see that he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God the Father, which must have looked something like the brightness of the sun, and to his right hand, there stood the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. Can you even imagine that? In that moment of ab, you're going, Lord, Lord, rocks, death. And you look into heaven and heaven's counsel, the, the gates or the, the clouds kind of part their way. And there you being filled with the Holy Spirit who assures you of everything to be true. This is true. And there, the glory of God the Father. And on the right hand, Jesus Christ. It is absolutely true. That moment, I am sure, as the rocks were hitting his body, he was assured. Absolutely assured. It even reminds me of the story of, of uh, three bold Hebrew boys or men. They were witnesses. They were, if you will, to be martyrs who refused to bow down before the image of 
Nebuchadnezzar. In his fury, the mad king made them bow down, had, had them bound and thrown into a furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. And, and the, the guards who were going to throw them into the furnace, what happened to them? They died, right? But to his shock, when he and his men looked into the flames, he didn't see three men bound, but four men unbound and walking around without any harm. And the appearance of the fourth was like the son of the gods. I believe that was the pre-incarnate Christ who had joined these brave witnesses in their moment of trial to support them and encourage them in their faithfulness to him. He spared them from death, but for some reason, God did not spare Stephen. But he welcomed Stephen home with open arms saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Whenever the Lord calls you to suffer for his name, he will be there to support you. Whether you die then or later, he will welcome you into his presence in heaven for eternity. Next week, John and Missy Camiola are going to be coming and sharing their testimony about their work in Joss, Nigeria. If you don't know anything about what they are doing there in Joss, Nigeria, they are at the point where the Muslims and Christians are constantly battling. They're, they hear gunfire all the time. There, there, is, there are people being killed because of their faith. But for some reason, and it seems absolutely ludicrous to most of us, John and Missy do what? They keep going back. Why? Because I think they have a certain sureness with Christ. They trust more fully in him than what the world can provide them. They have a heart for the gospel that when God says go, what do they do? They go. No matter what the consequences is. No matter what they may be, they go. And they don't go just as a married couple. <laughs> they bring their children. If you're a mother, you're going, that makes absolutely no sense. You know, dads want to think that, man, my kids are tough enough to handle it. Unless you have a softer heart and you're going, I can't send my Bubba. I can't send my Gracie into the line of fire and possibly be martyred for the gospel. But they do. Because they have an assurance that is deeper and far more rewarding than what this world can offer. We also learn that when we suffer according to God's will, we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator and show his love to those who persecute us. The words of 1 Peter 4.19 were written to a suffering church. He said this, Therefore, let those also who suffer to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. 
Entrust your souls to a faithful creator to do what is right. Okay, now if, if you get, if you kind of see where this is going, the one who has created us is the one who is sending us, isn't he? And as we go, there more than likely will be suffering and pain because of the gospel. But we are to entrust the one who has created us as we go. As we go. Stephen did this. As the rocks hit him, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive me. And in his dying breath, imitating his, his Savior's words from the cross, Stephen did what was right towards his enemies. What did he do? He didn't pick up rocks and start hurling back at them. He didn't, he didn't get up and take off running. What did he do? He prayed. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Spurgeon in one of his sermons called Stephen's Death, real creative title, uh, he pointed out that Stephen's death was full of Jesus in these ways. Jesus seen, Jesus invoked, Jesus trusted, and Jesus imitated. Jesus seen. See, Stephen looked into heaven, and the Lord gave him a literal vision of the splendor of God's glory and of Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God the Father. If the members of, of the Sanhedrin would have looked up, they would have seen the ceiling of this, this council chamber. They wouldn't have seen anything. God is not in the business of revealing his, his heavenly, heavenly glory to hard-hearted skeptics. To have that kind of vision of an unseen Christ by faith at the moment of death, we have got to cultivate. We have got to cultivate it by faith now. We need to pray as Paul prayed, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That we can see Christ in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, that we can see Christ. He also pointed, Spurgeon pointed out that it was Jesus Christ invoked. As Stephen died, he called upon the Lord Jesus in prayer. Clearly, he believed in the full deity and divinity of Jesus Christ, or he would not have prayed to him. In the midst of our pain, I think we are pretty good in our prayer life, aren't we? When it's all hitting the fan, oh Lord, deliver me from this. Lord, give me back what I love the most. But whenever we suffer because of faith, we, are, we can call out to Jesus Christ and know that he is the merciful high priest who is sympathetic to our situation. He doesn't always answer it in the way that we go, huh, well, this is really comfy and cozy and nice and warm and safe. In fact, he, he often says, stay in it. Stay in it. 
because what I have in store for you is far better than what this world can offer. I have given you life, and life to its fullest, not just now, but for for eternity. Stay in it. Your rewards that the world offers are nothing. They pale in comparison to what I have in store for you. Pray that, Lord, may your kingdom come in this situation, and may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, that is my prayer as we are going through this. Lord, I don't, I, my, my flesh cries out for comfort, for safety, for security, but Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done, whatever it may be. If it is to stay in suffering, Lord, let your will be done. You are my security. You are the one that I cling to. You are my anchor. And that anchor holds. Spurgeon, his number three point was that Jesus trusted. Clearly, Stephen trusted Jesus to receive his spirit as it was separated from his body at the moment of death. And although he had suffered a terrible and violent, painful death. He died with a supernatural peace. How? Scripture says he fell asleep. I don't know if that's the way that it looked as the the crowd was hurling rocks at him, but Luke says he fell asleep. Sleep refers to the body which rests in the grave until the resurrection of the coming of Jesus Christ. A believer's soul goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. And Jesus suffered a violent death on the cross to remove its sting so that his followers may fall asleep, even if they are brutally murdered as Stephen was. And while it is proper for devout men and women to to grieve over Stephen's death, and to give him a proper burial, it was for their sake, wasn't it? Not for his. He was safe in the presence of the Lord, whom he trusted for eternal life. Safe. Secure. And we must daily in trusting Jesus Christ in practical ways in every trial that we face in order to have a habit of faith to trust in him at that moment of death. Stephen's life was one full or of one piece, one whole. He was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit in life. He was full of faith and the Holy Spirit as he died. He was one piece, whole. Are you trusting, really deeply trusting in Jesus right now? I think about, I think it was Friday night, maybe it was, Laura and I were watching the news and there was a football game going on in the city of Chicago. You know what I'm talking about? Where all of a sudden there was talk about there was a gunshot that took place. 
And what happened? Chaos. The whole crowd left. And there was terror going on. I think I would be in the same place. If I heard that there was a gunshot going on, that there was a possible of a gang fight going on. Many of us, when we even think that there might be conflict or pain, we, we run for the hills, don't we? We avoid it at all cost instead of trusting that this is exactly where Jesus wants you in that moment. The reality is at that football game, there was no gunshot. The game was rescheduled for the next day and nobody was allowed to come watch the game. Our lives have got to be fully trusting in Jesus Christ that no matter where it is, that he has you planted there and that we've got to trust him fully. No matter what the dangers might be. No matter what the outcome might be. Lastly, he said that Jesus imitated. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. An imitation of his Lord, Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. His prayer was answered in a, in a spectacular way. And if we read scriptures too quickly, we'll miss it. His prayer was answered in a spectacular way with the conversion of Saul. Spectacular. The one who was bitter and angry and just approved of this brutal killing of, of, of Stephen, a godly man who, who had no malice in him whatsoever. God took that man and did not hold his sin against him. And he experienced the Lord's gracious forgiveness for his own sins. We will only be able to show God's forgiveness towards those who persecute us if we daily focus on how much the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven us through his death. Stephen, I believe, fully understood the cross. Fully understood it, grasped it, received the forgiveness, received the grace that is found there. And he got it. And he was able in his moment of brutal, violent death to be able to say, Father, don't hold their sins against them. Lord, in your mercy, would you forgive them? Would your spirit convict their hearts and turn them towards you? Lord, as the, as the stones were hailing down on him, he, he got the gospel. He got the gospel and he begged God, forgive them. Through this moment, through this incident, God, would you use this to forgive them? that they may be drawn to you. Stephen's death teaches us that we should expect suffering if we follow the Savior. We should expect it. We should also expect his faithful presence to be with us and his welcome in heaven when we leave this life. And therefore, we can trust him with our souls and our lives that he will do what is right. And finally, last thing, Jesus always, 
always, always uses the suffering of his saints for the greater purpose in, his greater purpose and glory. Always. Your suffering is not in vain. Stephen's suffering was not in vain. Fox's book of martyrs, all those people who are listed, the stories of their life and how they shared the gospel and often came to brutal deaths, their suffering and deaths are not in vain, but it is ultimately for the glory of God and his purposes. Why would God take the life of this bright, shining, promising preacher who knows his Old Testament and recognizes the power of the gospel? Why would, why would God take him? Ultimately, for his purposes and his glory. Stephen, at that moment, may not realize the purpose of his suffering in the moment. But God, with his eternal perspective, says, your death serves my eternal purposes to bring people to me. Your, your security, your salvation is secure. Your safety is set with me. Your life is to be used. No one suffers for Christ in vain. No one. Stephen laid down his life. But the beautiful thing, as one of the early church fathers said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The persecution that rose against the church scattered the seeds of the gospel. And watching Stephen die had a profound, profound and unforgettable effect on Saul. When we suffer, whether from persecution or from other trials, no matter what the degrees, I think we need to keep two things in mind. Here's the first. And this is something that I have to constantly remember. I am not indispensable for God's work. Man, it's just not going to happen without me. I am indispensable. Man, this, this church is going, if I am not there and doing it, man, you need me. God needs me. You are not indispensable in God's work. If he takes me out now, as he did with Stephen, he can easily raise up many others to continue the work. That's how God works. This will just keep us in the proper state of humility. It is Christ who builds his church. I am just a small part of the process. I'm a blip on the screen, and so are you. Second thing that we need to remember as we suffer is that the Lord is mindful of my service for him. And he will duly reward even a cup of cold water given in his name. There are no useless parts of the body of Christ. Whatever you or I do for his name's sake counts for eternity. No matter what it is. 
whatever we do for the sake of the cause, for the sake of Christ, counts for eternity. And you've got to keep this in mind so you do not become discouraged or lose heart in the battle. There's times where you just wonder, God, why are you not blessing this? We are doing great things here. We're doing this. We're being faithful. We're striving after you. God, why are you not blessing this? Don't be discouraged. He keeps in mind everything. Scripture says that even a cup of cold water. When was I in prison? When did I give you water? Uh, When you've done it to the least of these. got to keep that in mind you're not indispensable you're expendable because your creator has a purpose so whether it is in ministry whether it's in education whether it's in carpentry whether it is as a student you are to be used for his purposes And when your time is done, he'll take you home in whatever manner. Whether it be through a car accident where we go, that is just a freak of nature. That should have never happened. That just doesn't seem right. His timing. You are not indispensable. And at the same time, he is mindful of what you are doing for his name's sake. Be faithful. I read a book on Amazon. My little Kindle thing is called Lords of the Earth. Story about uh, Don Richardson who is telling the story of Stan Dale who obeyed God's call to take the gospel to a fierce tribe in New Guinea. Towards the end of the book, I'm going, okay, I need a little bit more meat, a little bit more action to go into this. It wasn't until the last few pages where Stan Dale stepped out because he had such a heart for lost people. He was willing to go into the jungles and to bring the gospel. These people had never seen a white man and he boldly walked into these camps where they were known for not just head hunting, but cannibalism. Insane. And the scary thing is, for me, he brought his family into it. As he met this this tribe in this valley, and their way of killing was through spears and arrows, they shot him at first with five arrows, which, what did he do? He plucked them out one at a time while shouting to his tormentors, run away, home, all of you. It's basically saying, bring it on, you sallies. You've done enough. And although the arrows had penetrated his diaphragm and his intestines, he managed to hike to safety and survive. At this point, my attitude would have been, they, they've had their chance, I'm not going back, don't be a fool, you're being an idiot, you know, you got shot five times with, with these arrows, you, you're bleeding internally, time to go home. 
uncle. But what did Standale do? He went back. This time the warriors decided to make sure that he died. A tribal priest moved in and fired an arrow at point-blank range, hitting him right under his right arm as he pledged, ple pleaded with him to just go home. Another priest shot a bamboo-bladed shaft into his back, and as the arrows entered his flesh, Stan continued to pull them out one by one and broke them as he threw them down. Dozens of arrow at, arrows at this time were now flying at him from all different directions. He kept pulling them out and breaking them and dropping them at his feet until he could not keep up with the number of arrows that were coming at him. Fifty arrows. Then sixty. But Stan stood his ground. The startled warriors began to worry that this man might be immortal. And they started screaming, fall, just fall, die. And finally, Stan died. And the warriors repeated a similar attack on his partner, Phil Masters. To make sure that the white men did not resurrect, the warriors beheaded them, chopped their bodies into pieces, set them on a shelf overnight, to make sure that they would not come back together. Normally, these, this tribe would eat these bodies to increase their own life force. But in this case, they waited to make sure that these dismembered bodies would not resurrect. An older tribal mem member convinced them not to eat them, but to cremate the remains. It would seem that these two men died in vain. Right? The gospel didn't penetrate him. No one dared to go back into this dangerous valley. But I'm going to tell you, God's providence is amazing. A missionary pilot got confused in bad weather and flew into the same mountainous valley where the two men had been murdered. The plane crashed, killing everybody on board except for a missionary's nine-year-old son. God used this strange twist of providence to get the gospel to these fierce warriors. To find out the rest, you're going to have to read the book. But I'll tell you, the tribe has been transformed by the power of the gospel. Are we willing to go? Seriously. Is your life your own? Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own. But I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior. Whether it be life, whether it be death. I'm not my own. Lord, like Stephen, use me. Because, Missio Dei Church, if we truly believe that, if you truly believe that the gospel is the power of God, it will empower you to go. It'll empower you to go to your next door neighbor and to build gospel-centered 
relationships, to ultimately share the power of God, which is the gospel. And whether they respond in the way you wanted to or not, you trust your Savior that he will care for you in this process. And that ultimately his purposes are higher than your purposes. You will go. You will introduce unbelieving people to a powerful Savior, a loving Savior, a healing Savior, a redeeming Savior. One who is not like any other. So no matter where you are, if it's a high school campus, a a junior high campus, if it is in a workplace where you do AutoCAD, AutoCAD, right? Whether it is, whether you're going to be in construction or whether you're an office manager, whether you're a high school teacher, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a PT, OT, LMNOP, whatever you are, God is calling you to be faithful in those places and to move boldly. The question is, will you trust Do you believe the gospel? Really? Do you believe the gospel? Then you will go and do things that you would never have done before.